0: The National Archives podcast series for King and Country, Indian Soldiers on the Western Front, presented by Shribani Basu. This talk was recorded on the 10th of November 2015 at the National Archives, Q. Thank you, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. I, I was walking past those uh, desks and thinking, oh, God, I've spent years and years sitting here researching all my books. I absolutely love this place. And those of you who are working here, I'm sure you love it too. And those, who, those of you who haven't, do come in, because the things you find here are treasures. So thank you, Sarah, for inviting me now to talk here. <laughs> so um, today I'm going to, in about 35 or 40 minutes, run through four years. So it's going to be a quick run through um, the war. And uh, as Sara said, I've, I'm not a military historian, so don't expect detailed accounts of anything. But for me, it's the personal stories that drew me to this war. Uh, the stories of peasants, the stories of uh, Maharajas, the stories of these ordinary soldiers who crossed all these thousands of miles and came here. So without further ado, let's get stuck in. On the night of 4th August 1914, as Big Ben stuck 11 p.m., Britain's Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, knew that the world was about to change. The deadline for Germany to withdraw from Belgium had passed. Britain would now enter the Great War. Thousands of miles away, the Indian Empire was sleeping. Night would soon turn to day, and India would wake up to the news that they too were at war. Lord Kitchener had called for 100,000 volunteers in Britain, but he knew that they would not be enough. Britain needed the troops from the colonies, from Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and India. Of these, India had the largest standing army, so they would get the first call to mobilize. And here you can see the posters that were rallying people to to recruit. Another one. You can see soldiers of the king. And the Viceroy of India, Lord Harding... He immediately declared that the people of India were backing this war. He had received messages of support from the Maharajas who offered money and troops. Top leaders of the Congress as well felt that they needed to back the war effort. And the thinking behind this was that if they were loyal to the British, they might give them dominion status like the other uh, countries. So mobilization orders were now immediately sent out to all the cantonments. I'll just give you a little brief about the structure of the Indian Army at this stage and why it was the way it was. It was after the mutiny that Lord Roberts took over. And for him, recruitment for the Indian Army was from the so-called martial races. So he wanted to recruit the Sikhs, the Pathans from the Northwest, the rugged men from the hills, the Gurkhas, the Garwalis, the men from Rajasthan. And he didn't want what he called the effeminate people from the south, from Madras. He said, no, they're not, they don't figure. And from Bengal, they had been part of the mutiny, so they didn't count at all. But these are the people he wanted, and he's building his army. He also noticed the Garhwalis, who were these men from the hills, who were very much like the Gurkhas. And he said, they need to have their own regiment. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the Garwal regiment because there are two, two people from here who then go on to win the Victoria Cross. And I do their personal stories in my book. So, these Garwali men, here's an image of them, peasants, as you can see, from the hills, you know, dressed in these clothes, like, they were mainly shepherds, and they were actually called by the British, the raw stock, that's what they looked like before they were recruited. Once recruited, their transformation is complete, haircuts, uniforms later, they are soldiers of the, of the British Indian Army, there they are, looking very smart. And uh, the Garwal Regiment would go on to win two Victoria Crosses and several awards of um, merit. And uh, here we are. We see the two Garwalis. That's the Ran Singh Negi on the left and Gabar Singh Negi. They both win the Victoria Cross. Mm, and that is the, just to remember, that's the background they came from. Now, as the call for mobilization reaches these remote areas in the hills, the troops start gathering in their cantonment towns, and two divisions of the Indian Army, the Lahore Division and the Merit Division, start making their way from North India to these port towns of Bombay and Karachi, from where they're going to sail with the British Expeditionary Force. Now, along with the Garwalis, we have the Pathans, so here they are, strong men from the Northwest, rugged men. Two of these men also figure in my book, uh, Khudadat Khan and Mir They are destined for future glory. They are also going to win the Victoria Cross. Along with the Patans. we also have the Sikhs, of course. And this is going to be a story about Manta Singh. He is right uh, top row, as you can see. He and his uh, captain, so there's a story you're going to hear later about the two of them. Now, they all set out from their cantonment towns and they're heading heading to the ports. And of course, last but not least, the Gurkhas, who are famous for their bravery and their loyalty, they came down from the hills of Nepal and India. And uh, while they're on route marches in Bombay waiting for the ship, everybody in Bombay thought they were Japanese. They'd never seen Gurkhas before. So they didn't know who they were. Then the Gorkhas had never seen the sea either. So it was all very strange for them. They taste, They went swimming. They tasted the salty water. And um, they were Hindus, staunch Hindus. For Hindus now, the sea was actually called the Kalapani, which means black waters. And it was forbidden for Hindus to cross the seas. So it was a big ask when the British government says, you are going to cross these seas. And as we know one and a half million Indians crossed these seas and came to fight for the British. So we have the, we've seen the foot soldiers and now we need to see the Maharaja. He's also going there with his turban and his saber rattling. And of course, we, uh, he's the Maharaja of Bikaner. And we also have the general, very importantly, General Wilcox, Sanders trained an old India hand and he's recruited to be the commander of the Indian army. He loves it, uh, the Indian soldiers. He's very close to them, and at the end of the war, he actually writes a long poem about, about the Indian soldiers. So here we are, we are already uh, soldiers, generals, but when you take the Indian army abroad, there was, you know, the logistic problems for the British are huge, because it's uh, the Hindus will not eat food cooked by the Muslims. They will not have water given to them by a Muslim. The Muslims won't eat pork, the Hindus won't eat beef all the slaughtering has to be done separately. So what do we have? We have a huge group of followers who comes along. So they have the cooks, the cleaners, the water carriers, the bellow blower, the kneader of dough, the sices the grooms, and it's a huge battalion. It's a band of brothers that are making their way to the West. And the Germans actually look at them and say, you know, what on earth are they doing? Why are they getting this Indian army to the Western front? They're, They write in their newspapers. But of course, I think they knew what they were doing. So here we have the followers all marching. And here you can see a cook. Because it was very important for the Indians to have home-cooked, hot Indian curries. I mean, this is the first time the curries actually reach the front line. They are cooking very close to the trenches and supplying them with hot food. But at this time, the Indians had not even been told their destination. They are in their summer clothes. And uh, they think they're probably going to Africa. They get on these ships. Soon they're streaming across the Indian Ocean on a moderate sea. Sikhs on board, they have their holy book with them. They sing their religious songs while Muslims go up on the promenade and pray towards Mecca. And it's only on 30th August, a few weeks in, that there is an announcement on the radio from Lord Kitchener. And he's announced in parliament that two divisions are coming to Europe. And they just there are cheers on the ships because they realize that for the first time, they are actually going to the West. They're going to be fighting shoulder to shoulder with their English uh, counterparts and officers. So here they are, they reach. On 26 September, the Indian ships arrive in Marseille. The soldiers disembark. And as they, as they uh, come off the ship, they are greeted with loud cheers by the French, who say, excuse me, who call them Les Hindu, Les Hindu. They thought they were all Hindus. And it's also the first time that the French had seen these exotic soldiers from the east. So as they march, the French women want to come up and give them flowers. You can see her giving, giving a rose uh, to this Sikh soldier. And these Sikhs were very embarrassed because some of them wanted to hug them and kiss them. And they were saying, you know, what's going on here? So as they march to the camps, the cheering continues. And the Indians reply with the only one English phrase that they know, which they've learned from their officers. And it's hip hip hurrah. So as they march. <laughs> they say these words. And even the followers, these cooks and cleaners, they get a loud cheer. And they've never been cheered before. You know, everybody's on earth. Actually, the the adrenaline is flowing at this time. But of course, the cold autumn months are setting in. And the Indians, you can see them in their summer clothes. They have not got any winter clothes yet. They are still wearing thin cotton khakis. Desperately, it's October, they wrap themselves in anything they can find. Tablecloths, downs, And they did just getting through the, through the evenings really. And the French watch in wonder as these Indians get about their way. They think, uh, they say these Indians are very strong because they eat trees in the morning. And actually it's the Indians cleaning their teeth with uh, neem sticks. <laughs> so <laughs> they've never seen such things. So these are the scenes from the camp. You can see them sitting by the camp stove. Sikhs are combing their long hair. Um, separate f- slaughter facilities are set up for Hindus and Muslims, and suddenly the French countryside is transformed with the Indians. Um, they're carrying sheep. Uh, though The Indians preferred goat. They try to get goat for them. Uh, people gather at the train stations to see them, and uh, they give them bread and sweets and cheer them along. They watch as they go about their ways. I mean, this could be a village in India, and it's actually, you know, in France that they're s- sitting near the trains. Um, and at the camps and the billets, the Indians, they pray. They set up these, you can see the Sikhs praying over here. Um, they play with the locals, the young, little children, young boys. And um, they even get to taste some wine. So here they are. Um, soon, it is time to travel to the front line. And red London buses transport them. They actually came all the way from Piccadilly and they, they took them to the front line. So before long, they now arrive in Belgium and here you can see the little children are waiting for this uh, Gurkha battalion to arrive they take up position in their trenches and they are still in their cotton clothes they're thrown into the deep end now with no time to get accustomed to the trenches they find themselves in the first battle of Ypres defending the British line there's not enough barbed wire, not enough ammunition, and there aren't enough troops. Even the trenches, the, Indian, the, the English trenches, they were shallow, so they soon got filled up with water, while the Germans were at a height, so they were dry, but the British trenches were muddy almost immediately. And all the while, of course, the German bombs are raining down on them. The Indians had never seen warfare like this. They are used to hand-to-hand combat in the northwest frontier, a clash of steel and swords. Moreover, their companies are split up, so they are sent with officers who can't speak their language, uh, they are not with their own uh, fellow cu- cu- countrymen, so there's complete confusion. But this, they hang on, they do their bit. And on a cold, damp day in October, when all the men from his regiment were killed, Sipai Khudadat Khan, whose photo you saw earlier, kept firing till his last bullet was over, and held his trench till reinforcements arrived. He became the first Indian to win the Victoria Cross. Very proud. The action of the Indians allowed the British to hold the line. Remember, the Commonwealth, the rest of the Commonwealth troops, well, they weren't Commonwealth then, Empire troops, had not yet arrived. They were not ready. It's only the Indians who were holding this line. Indians who didn't know anything about trench warfare, they held the line. The Germans could not reach the ports. They were reinforcing the British army, who were exhausted after the first few weeks of fighting. So their role is absolutely crucial here. Meanwhile, while this is happening in Belgium, in France, further south, the Garwalis and the Sikhs are in action in Neuve-Chapelle and Festubert. You can see the Garwali troops. They are fierce warriors. And uh, Darwan Singh Negi of the Garwal Regiment wins the second Victoria Cross for the Indians in Festubert. This is a painting showing his, his bravery. He goes through the trenches, leads the attack, and wins the Victoria Cross. In December 1914, the man from the hills of Garwal was personally presented the medal by King George V in Locan in France. So here you can see the queen also arrives there. And uh, the king would always ask them if they had any wish. So when asked what he wanted, the simple Garwali, he says, all he wanted was a school to be built near the hills where he lived. So the people, the local hill people could be educated because he himself was completely illiterate. And he realized the value of education. So this school was built. And it is still standing there today, which is quite nice. It's now a secondary school. So we have Darwan Singh getting his VC. Now by November, the Indians have their first sight of snow. Still without great croats. they brave their first winter in the cold, muddy trenches. And the soldiers write about it. So here, here's a letter I'm quoting. In the trench, the snow rises from the feet to the neck, and the heat. feet and hands are frostbitten. It rains and snows day and night, wrote a soldier. Another lamented. The whole world is being sacrificed, and there is no session. It is not a war, but a Mahabharat. After a brief respite over Christmas, the fresh offensive is planned in the new year. The Battle of Neuve Chapelle in March would be the first battle that the entire Indian Corps would take a a role in and work as a complete unit. They wouldn't be split up for this one. So it's also the first time, the Battle of Neuve Chapelle is really important, it's the first time that the German defense is actually broken, and it's done with the help of the Indian soldiers. But the casualties were enormous. In just three days of fighting, 4,233 Indians lay dead. Gabbar Singh Negi of the Garwal Regiment would fight to the last and die on the battlefield. He would posthumously be awarded the Victoria Cross. This is Gabur Singh and in his village of Garwal, his 14-year-old bride Saturi would spend her life alone, wearing the Victoria Cross pinned on her sari all her life. It was all she had to remind her of him, of her husband. And Saturi actually lives uh, right till 1981. And uh, I'll show you her image. <laughs> this is an old Saturi Devi. She would, there is a memorial in Chamba in this little village to uh, Singh. And every year, she would stand there and she would take um, the salute on his behalf. And you can see her wearing the Victoria Cross. So it's a, it's a lovely story. I went there, I met the family. They still live there. It's still peasants, and uh, it's amazing. So this is one of the, you know, it's written about in the book. There's, there's quite a bit about Gabal Singh Negi. And uh, in Neuve Chappelle itself, there was another very poignant story, very moving. And this is of the Sikh, Manta Singh. Now, Manta Singh, you've remembered this photo before. He's standing in the center. His friend, George Henderson, is standing next to him. He's oh. his captain. So at the Battle of Neuve Chapelle, uh, both are out there in the field. And suddenly, he sees Captain Henderson injured, lying there. And he doesn't think. He just takes a wheelbarrow, goes out there in the field, puts his captain in it, and starts wheeling him back. And of course, he's hit. This is under constant shell fire. Manta Singh takes a bullet in his leg. They both, he brings his captain to safety, but Captain survives, Manta Singh is injured. He's sent to Brighton where he has gangrene in his legs and uh, he dies. But that's not the end of the story because uh, Captain Henderson never forgot this sacrifice. And when he goes back after the war, he makes sure that Manta Singh's son, Asa Singh, when he grows up, he gets a job in the same regiment, 15th Ludhiana Sikhs. And uh, his own son, so Captain Henderson's son, Robert, and Manta Singh's son, Asa Singh, they become friends. And they go together to fight in the Second World War. <laughs> this friendship continues. And now the third generation, they actually live in UK. And uh, they go together. So Asa Singh's son is Jamal Singh. and. Robert's son is Ian Henderson. They're the best of friends, obviously. They go every year to the memorial services together. They're now both in their 70s. It's very moving. It's one of those stories of friendship formed through sacrifice and forged in these fields of battle. So um, these were the poignant stories that came to me, you know, I found and I loved. So now as the war, to get back to the war, as the war was drawing on without end, the soldiers wrote letters, Hope, about the horrors of war. No one who has ever seen the war will forget it to their last day, wrote a Pathan soldier. Just like a turnip is cut to pieces, so a man is blown to bits by the explosion of a shell. All those who came with me have ceased to exist. In April 1915, they faced the German gas attack in Ypres, tying their turbans over their faces to protect themselves. They didn't have gas masks at the time. And they were told, dip your turbans in chloride of lime, wrap it round your face. And if you can, they were told, urinate on your turbans and put that round your face and that'll save you. And that's how they faced the German gas attack. For his bravery, in the face of the gas attack at the Second Battle of Ypres, Mirdast, the Pathan we saw, whose photo we saw, was awarded the Victoria Cross. He never recovered from this gas attack. He used to write letters saying the Dhua. dhuwa means the smoke has got to me. And he didn't actually live too long, but uh, he is presented his uh, Victoria Cross in the grounds of the Brighton Pavilion, by King George V again. And here he is, you can see the queen. It was a grand presentation ceremony. And once again, he was asked to make a request. And Meerdas' request was that once a soldier is wounded, he should not be sent back to the trenches. And this was the overriding feeling in all the Indian soldiers. They said, Sahib, we've done our bit. You know, we are injured. Don't send us back. Please let us go home to our countrymen. But that didn't happen. If they were okay, they were patched up, they were sent back. So um, as the number, now you might wonder why are they here in Brighton? Because as the number of injured were increasing by the thousands, they couldn't accommodate them in the French hospitals, so they had to bring them by ship. They got them into Southampton Port, got them into, as quickly as possible, to hospitals which were made for them in Bournemouth and Brighton. And the biggest and the most exotic of hospitals was the one they made at the Brighton Pavilion because all those of you who've seen the pavilion know what it looks like. So this is converted to a hospital. What was amusing is that the soldiers were told that it was a former palace, and they, said, and they were allowed to believe that the king has left his palace for them, so he's actually evacuated it for them. But, uh, of course, it actually belonged to Brighton Council, but they said, oh, forget it, don't tell them that story. So they love the thought that the king has given them their palace, and the soldiers here were delighted. Of course they would be. Come out of the trenches and then lie here. And uh, many of them, they lay beneath these grand chandeliers. One of them thought, you know, he wrote, I am in heaven, naturally. Uh, there's the music room as well. Well, this is the pavilion. You can see the Indians standing outside. And the king and queen, Um, they very quickly the administration realized the the PR value that this had, that these soldiers are so happy, and uh, the king and queen came to visit the soldiers at the pavilion. They started making postcards of these. So postcards of these men lying beneath chandeliers as if this, you know, was actually then sent out to recruit more Indians to come into the war. It sort of gave the impression that, you know, this is a war. I mean, look at it. (laughs) He's he's living in a palace. Uh, So also, uh, images of Meerdas receiving this award from the king and the king speaking to all his, you know, the ordinary soldiers, these were sent back to India. And some of the w- images of Meerdas getting the VC were used to shame the British soldiers who didn't want to enlist. So they'd say, look, this man from, you know, the Northwest has come here and he's sacrifi- he's doing this and, you know, you are not enlisting. So a lot of these propaganda, these were used for propaganda. And 20,000 copies of a brochure on Brighton showing all these men were sent to India to recruit more soldiers. So here we have more images of uh, the soldiers lying there. The dome was converted into a hospital, and there was also another h- home for the homeless, which became the Kitchener Hospital for Indian soldiers. But of course, English, I mean, there were still various conditions. English nurses were not allowed to nurse injured Indian soldiers. They did not want, Indi- English ladies could not visit the English soldiers. They did not want any dangerous liaison between the white Indian, lonely Indian uh, English women and these soldiers, you know. And they loved these soldiers. They would go out there. Every time they saw a turban, we have these letters from the soldiers saying, you know, oh, these women love our turbans. They come to us. They invite us to our houses. But so they were really being watched. They had to go out under supervision. Uh, There were barbed wire around Kitchener Hospital. And one soldier, he writes, uh, I'm in Kitchener jail. So there's a lot of discontent there. And uh, there's even a shootout, and all all that's in the book. (laughs) This is Kitchener Hospital. So they were taken out on a daily walk, but completely supervised. So it looks like, you know, wounded Indians are going for this. All looks very happy. It was, and they probably got an outing once in several weeks, or sometimes months. Children as young as 10 also were sent to the front line. Uh, they came in as followers, as needers of dough, sizes, but they got injured, they were so close to the trenches. And many of them were in the hospitals in Marseille, and some went into the trenches as combatants, and they came to Brighton. So we have a picture of a 16-year-old Gurkha boy, and he's Pim. And when the queen saw him, she was so moved, she gave him a rose, so he's, it's not very clever, he's actually holding up a rose given to him by the queen. And he lost his arm and his leg in the shellfire, And that's him sitting there. And that's his brother next to him who's lost a leg. So these are two young Gurkhas, both below age, somehow must have increased their age, got through, and here they are. But uh, despite all this, the British did want to ensure that the Indians were very happy and cared for in these hospitals. So a lot of care is taken to look after them. They make sure they have the separate... um, the meat uh, they eat, the slaughterhouses are separate. And a very enterprising butcher in Brighton immediately sets up a halal butcher shop. So probably the first one in Brighton that comes up. And he's doing brisk business. The, the Indians are also taken out to, on outings, those who are well enough to travel. And they t- they're taken out on these open top buses, carriages, And the reason for this is so that the people can see them and see their turbans, and they would always cheer for the Indians when they saw them. So it made the Indians feel very happy and, you know, very proud that they were so popular. But despite all these arrangements, the bright lights of Brighton, the hospital care, the soldiers were very depressed. A Gurkha soldier committed suicide at Kitchener Hospital. In letter after letter, the soldiers spoke of their longing to go home and their despair that they would soon be sent back to the trenches. I'm quoting from a letter. For God's sake, don't come. Don't come to this war in Europe. Tell my brother, for God's sake, not to enlist. This is a letter that goes out from a Bataan soldier. There was despair that only those who'd lost an arm and a leg had any hope of returning home. So it is getting very... By the end of their second winter, they are really, really desperate and very, very depressed. Uh, But of course, they go on. But by the end of 1915, most of the infantry are now given orders to move to Mesopotamia. So now they are going to move to the deserts, Mesopotamia, Palestine, North Africa. They now have to suffer harsh desert conditions. My book doesn't even go into what happens there, because that would take me another three years. And it would be another (laughs) several pages, thousands of pages. Because more sacrifices were actually made. In Mesopotamia, twenty thousand lost in cut in, in the siege of Cut um, but the cavalry sappers miners they remained behind in Europe they watched. Very sadly, they watched their British counterparts, the other Tommies, go home on leave. But they could not go on leave. And they would plead, Sahib, can we go home? We'll be fresh and come back. But they couldn't because they were told the sea journey is too long. We can't spare the ships. It'll take six weeks to go, six weeks to come. Completely out of question. So they actually had no leave. They worked right through. Some, the sappers stayed on for five years. Clearing the mines after it was over. And of course, by 1916, we have the famous Battle of Somme, which begins on 1st July 1916. On the first day of the battle, the Indians are photographed doffing their hats. Here we are, they're doffing their hats. In the first few hours alone, the British lost 20,000 men and 40,000 were seriously injured. Never had such a beautiful summer day seen so many dead. By mid November, the Battle of Somme was over. The British suffered around 420,000 casualties. The total number of dead on both sides was 1.3 million. While the Indian infantry are fighting in these trenches, there's a different story. We also, I've also covered the first Indian pilots who are flying in the skies over France and Germany. And something most people didn't know was they were actually the first time there were Indian pilots flying in the First World War. Pilots come from a different class of society. They're actually very upper class, they've been to Oxford and they've been to Cambridge, so they're very different from our peasants, you know, illiterate peasants from the homelands. So here are our pilots, very dapper Hardit Singh Malik, who's a a Sikh, who is the first Indian pilot to join the Royal Flying Corps. dapper Sikh graduated from Oxford, but he had to really fight his way to get in, he had to fight British prejudice, because um, Indians were not allowed to be officers, so they said we can't, and in in the Royal Flying Corps, you have to be an officer. So they said no. So he went to France, and he was ready to join the French Air Force. And then his tutor at Oxford heard about it and said, this is nonsense. And uh, the French are ready to have him, and we are not ready to take this young lad. So he made a big fuss, and immediately Hardit Singh Malik was recruited. So he became the first Indian pilot. And as soon as he joined, he opened the the door for the others. So waiting to become a pilot was a young 18-year-old boy who was from, he studied here in St. Paul's in Kensington. So as I said, these were very upper-class families, very elite. And he was barely out of school, raring to go. All he wanted to do was bring down German planes. And Laddie joins. He's full of youthful verve, energy. His only ambition take down the planes, fly. And uh, he also enjoyed sketching. So, in only 10 days, very quickly, he learns. He learns to fly amazingly quickly. Between 9th July and 19th July, in 10 days, Laddie takes down nine German aircraft, becoming India's first flying ace. But it's all to too soon for Laddie. While flying a dangerous mission in France on 22nd July 1918, this is just months before the end of the war, his plane was attacked by four German planes and a dogfight followed. His plane was shot, not to be cornered. This teenager, he fought back, taking down two enemy planes with him. And Laddie was only 19. He was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, becoming the first Indian to win this award. And even Red Baron, uh, the famous German flying, flying ace, Manfred von Richthofen, he flew over the sky where Laddie had, had died, and he dropped a wreath to remember his bravery, so he was quite something. <laughs> As I said, less than three months after Laddie died over the skies of France, the war was over. Over 73,000 Indians died in the war. Hundreds of thousands were seriously wounded, returned to India, their lives damaged forever. To acknowledge the contribution of the Indians in the war, they were allowed to attend the Imperial War Cabinet in London and the peace talks in Paris in 1919. So, catch um, that Laddie made. He he made these detailed sketches, and he would draw German planes that came down as well and sign them all. So this is the Imperial War Conference. Uh, Attending it are two Indians. One is the Maharaja of Bikaner, standing top row with a hat, and uh, Lord Sinha, who is, represents the Indian government. Bikaner goes on to the peace talks as well, and he actually signs. So there's an Indian who signed on the Treaty of Versailles, which is something, again, we didn't know at all. So the signing in the Hall of Mirrors, uh, this is immortalized in this painting by William Orpin. And you can see the Maharaja. He's sort of standing center stage. You know, The attention is on him because he looks so grand. And everybody was you know, very impressed with him. So India had backed the British war effort for a reason. They wanted dominion status, um, but however, they were denied this, they got no such thing. Instead, what they got was barely five months after the war, General Reginald Dyer fired on an unarmed crowd made up largely of Sikh men, women, and children who'd gathered at a park near the Golden Temple in Amritsar on 13th April 1919. Despite the loyalty of the Sikh troops, their contribution to the war, Dyer ordered his men to continue fighting till the last bullet was over. It was an act that alienated the whole nation. And the poet Rabindranath Tagore returned his knighthood in protest, and the Indian struggle for independence moved up a gear. Meanwhile, as political unrest, economic crisis overtook India, they had paid heavily for this war, so they had lost so much money. Um, The crops had failed as a result. The soldiers of World War I were gradually forgotten because, you know, there were so many problems in this nation at the moment. The new Indian heroes were the ones who were fighting and dying for independence. Over the years, the soldiers were, you know, forgotten both by the masters they fought for and by their own countrymen. Only a few villages in India and Pakistan would remember their heroes. In a small hill station of Lansdowne, the images of Darwan Singh Negi and Kabar Singh Negi can be seen on the road so as you drive up to the as i was going up to this regimental center in Lansdowne, and there they were these paintings it says <coughs> it says in hindi hamare victoria cross vijeta which means our victoria cross winners uh, so they're very proud of them and this is just on the road road signs and uh, similarly in a remote village in pakistan uh, that is the home of khudadat khan you can see a roadside saying that way to khudadat khan's village literally The names of the Indian dead and missing are recorded in memorials in France and Flanders. This is the Indian Memorial at Neuve-Chapelle. It's a beautiful memorial. Uh, It's with two tigers and an Ashoka pillar and writings in Gurumukhi in Punjabi, Hindi, Urdu, and uh, in English. Um, So the names of the soldiers are also remembered um, in the Commonwealth soldiers in the Bedford House Cemetery. This is in Belgium. And you can see these are graves of Muslim soldiers. Uh, the names of the Indians are carved on the Menin Gate in Ypres. So cars drive through this, and the gates are the, the covered with names of those who died. But the Indians' names are actually written on the two pillars right at the entrance. So here's a close-up of the names of the Indians. Those who died in England were buried in the Brookwood Military Cemetery. This is the graves of the Muslim soldiers. And the Hindus uh, who died in the hospitals were cremated in the South Downs in Patcham near Brighton. And an Indian-style Chatri was built there after the war. And a memorial is held there every summer. It still, it still goes on. And that's where the two the Henderson family and the Manta Singh family go every year. So if you go there, you'll see them. As well as the great-grandson of General Wilcox. He also lays a wreath. <laughs> so these are the families I've followed in the book. Um, there's also a lovely story, which I won't have time to go into today, but it's uh, one of my favorites. It's a story of Sukha, who was a cleaner, who came with um, with the army? He was what is was from the lowest caste of India, so what they called an untouchable. So nobody wanted to know him, not even the Indians. And he comes along, he marches in this glorious autumn sun, uh, you know, when he gets off Marseille. And then Sukha cleans the trenches. Sukha is ill. Sukha is brought to clean the hospitals in Britain. And then Sukha dies. But that wasn't the end of the story. Sukha, is, uh, Sukha's body is taken to the Hindus, and they say, will you cremate him in patch him in these gods?" And they say, no, he's an untouchable. So they ask the Malvi of the local mosque invoking, will you bury Sukha? And they say, no, we want, he's not a Muslim, you're not going to bury him. So Sukha is lying in no man's land, he's got nobody. And then the vicar of the local church of Brockenhurst, he steps forward and he says, Sukha died for our country. He died for England, we will bury him. And the local parishioners uh, raise money for Sukha's gra- uh, tombstone, and here it is. It's in a lovely little church in Brockers- uh, Brockenhurst, and it's the biggest gravestone over there, paid for by the parishioners. So this was one of those lovely stories that I came across. And there were uh, other, as I said, there were cooks who were, you know, going close to the front line. They got hit by artillery fire. We have the graves of two cooks in, in, um, in. Uh, Brookwood. It's it's very sad. You know, you think of these b- names. They just have one name, Hansa, Babu. Where did they come from? They don't have a second name. Sukha didn't have a second name. He's just registered at Sukha Kallu. Uh, Kallu actually means dark, blacky. So he was just called Kallu because he was dark-skinned. So very, very moving stories that there are. Again, few visit these graves. I mean, who knows where Sukha's family is? Who? How would they ever come this far? Uh, these graves, nobody comes from their homes, from India. At the Indian Memorial at Neuve-Chapelle, the day I visited, which ha- it has names of over 4,000 people, Indians, uh, carved on these walls, Indians who died or who were never found. And there was no one there the day I visited, uh, only as I, you know, it's in a field in France just by itself, and only the songbirds bore witness to the dead. But luckily, there was, what was nice, is there was a single wreath lying there by a foreign office minister, And it said, our shared future is built on our shared past. So on that note, on the 100th anniversary, 101st of this great war, I hope I've been able to revive some of these stories of the forgotten soldiers and uh, bring up a part of history that would have been confined to the footnotes, really. Stories of these soldiers who crossed crossed these waters, Kalapani, in 1914, to serve king and another country. Thank you. the soldier (laughs) This podcast is copyright to the National Archives all rights reserved It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence